today we're going to continue in our series on the uh, parables of Jesus. It's called Stories Along the Way, as you can see. And last week, we looked at one of the most popular of all parables. Oh, you're not seeing that. There we go. Most popular of all parables, the parable of the prodigal son. Amazing parable, right? This is actually the most famous of all parables. It's the, it's the most beloved of all parables. I mean, it's emotional, it's touching. Uh, you know, you can't, you can't hear that parable and have it be taught and not be moved. But if last week's story is Jesus' most beloved of all parables, this week is actually Jesus' least popular, uh, you know, I mean, this is clearly a parable that a lot of people like to kind of move over. It's, it's not popular. Why? Well, Luke 16, 1 to 9, which was just read, is the story of the unjust manager. And it's notoriously difficult. Uh, it tends to lead, uh, leave readers confused. Uh, why is Jesus commending this person who rips off their boss? Is that what we're going to do when we leave? We're like, okay, yeah, I learned from church, got to rip off my boss. You know, what's the whole point about using your money to make friends? That doesn't sound very Christian. I mean, that sounds kind of weird. So what is going on here? Well, to answer these questions, we're going to go ahead and jump into the parable and see what we actually find going on there. I don't think it's going to be that crazy, but there is some surprises along the way. So with no further ado, we're going to start by looking at the two main characters. There was a rich man who had a manager. There's a rich man. This guy's wealthy. We know he's wealthy because people are borrowing all kinds of stuff from him. He's got it. He's got surplus. Uh, And as it is with all the truly rich, when you're truly rich, one of the marks of being truly rich is you have somebody else manage all of your assets. You know, he has too much to actually want to spend his whole life taking account of. So what does he do? He hires a manager. And this manager job would not be a bad job. This is a pretty sweet job to get back in the day. Because, in the Greek it is an oikonomos, it means that you lay down the law for the entire estate. You manage everything. It's like a CFO, COO, all wrapped into one. That's this guy's job. He lays down the rules. He makes all of the deals. He has the power to to enter into new contracts and agreements and um, make investments. And so that's his job. And by the way, this is one of those jobs that comes with a lifestyle, right? I mean, there's certain jobs when you get that job, like, oh, dude, you're set. Oh, you got a whole lifestyle. So he's moving into this nice estate. He's in charge. You know, his, he's got the right clothes. He's living in this beautiful environment. He's got all this food taken care of. He's got everything. It all comes from his lodging. It's all wrapped up into this amazing job. So things are going pretty good so far but the plot thickens. And charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. Um, He's caught. The manager is caught with his hand in the till. You know, he's caught lining his pockets. What's he doing? It's kind of what he's not doing. The word there is wasting. It's actually the exact same word as in the prodigal son. Uh, It it actually means that he was was just blowing the, the assets he wasn't paying attention to the accounts. He, wasn't really, he didn't really care about really thinking about what the boss wanted. He used that opportunity. And by the way, if you had that kind of carte blanche, you could definitely kind of work it, right? So he was working it to line his own pockets. And, and so he gets caught in this thing. Um, he's been neglectful. Uh, whereas the prodigal son is wasting his own money, he's wasting his boss's money and his resources uh, to feather his own nest. And so... The boss called him and said to him, what is this that I hear about you? 
Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. The boss fires him. Apparently, he believed the account because he brought off the bat. He says, you're over. Your services are no longer wanted here. And uh, you need to turn in. He gives him some time. You need to get, the, get, get all the account in order. You need to turn in the books. And uh, it doesn't say how long he, he gives him, but he gives him some time, some period of time to do that. Now, the boss made a major mistake here. My wife works in HR, and she fires people almost every week. That's kind of part of her job. She's a fire. Sorry, honey, I kind of outed you. But um, if you fire somebody that's been really egregious in what they've done, like they clearly have shown no concern for the goals of the company, you don't wait to like, oh, kind of hang out here for a while. That person is a loose cannon. So I don't think this is actually a whole teaching on how to manage, but there is a little insight here that this boss didn't quite do it right. And sure enough, this guy his mind starts working. It's been working the same way the whole time. Like, how do I save my own skin? Well, it's still working that way. Um, and so what happens? Well, the first thing that happens is panic. And the manager said to himself, what shall I do? Uh, the Greek there is like this feeling like, oh my gosh, like this guy's like, what am I going to do? He seriously panicked. Since my master is taking the management away from me, I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. Reality hits when he gets this news. Everything that he's taken for granted from the boss, all the, all the oversight, all the, the beautiful home, the food, the shelter, all this, it's all dependent on this job. It's going to be taken away. The boss job is going to be taken away. And now he's facing a serious situation. And when I say a serious situation and he panics, we have to remember that back then there was no such thing as unemployment. There was no such thing as welfare. If you lose your job and you can't get another job and you don't have any wealthy relatives, you very well can be out on the street. And so it can be a very serious situation. And that's what it appears to be, especially because it tells us in here that his prospects, which he's thinking of, are not that good. He immediately goes from, I can't do this job anymore. And why couldn't he? Well, if, maybe he's in a small town. If you're in a small town and everybody knows you're fired for malfeasance, who is going to hire you? Like that whole profession is over. So then he goes down his list. I can't dig. Why can't he dig? Well, maybe he's old. He knows he can't do manual labor. And then he says, and I'm too ashamed to beg. We're like, oh, get over yourself. But this is an honor-shame culture. And maybe we can't imagine it, but the excruciating psychological level of shame, if you went from this posh job to now begging with a tin cup, he's like, I can't do that. And so this is a very serious, possibly life-threatening situation and he's like, what am I going to do? And he's sitting there, and then suddenly it hits him. I've decided what to do. It's like, I've got it. He's finally figured it out. I've decided what to do so that when I'm removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? He said, 100 measures of oil, like 800 gallons. And he said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, and how much do you owe? And he said, 100 measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. So he's sitting there and he's thinking and he finally comes up with it. I've decided what it is. I've got it. What's he going to do? He's going to cook the books. Okay. <laughs> he's going to do something really, really sly. He starts calling these debtors in. And he deals with them one by one. We get two examples, but I think these are just exemplary 
of what happened with all the debtors. You know, he just went, I mean, he didn't just manage two people, okay? This guy had to manage all the debtors, and he brings them in one by one, and he does it totally on the sly. Why? Because he's still at the manager's estate. But he brings them in, he's like, okay, quick, let's do this, and sign here, sign there. It's like the typical con man, right? Like every time you have somebody doing something shady, let's just get this quick, quick, sign here, sign there. That's what's happening, right? And he wants to move these people through because he doesn't want to get caught. He's, he knows what he's doing here. And what does he do? He says, well, you've got 100 measures of oil, 800 gallons. It's equivalent to about three years of labor. Oil was very precious back then. It was central to their economy. And he says, just cut it in half like that. You know, I don't know how much that would be, but it's, imagine if somebody pulled you and said, hey, look, just come on in. You know, it's the, I don't know who it is. It's the person that has your mortgage. It says, come on in. Hey, real quick, we're going to cut your mortgage in half. Just sign here. Yeah, okay, as fast as I can, I'm signing here. You're so happy. If you're that person, it is your, you're like so happy, right? Oh, you had 600,000, but now you only owe 300,000. What a day, right? They don't ask any questions. Why would they? We do know that they probably should have because typically things like this didn't happen, but they don't want to know. They don't want to know what's going on. Nobody wants to know. Let's just work this deal and let's get this over with. So, and it's interesting to me, you know, there's, there's all kinds of speculation here about why exactly he cuts half the first one and, uh, and then only 80, 20% on the second one. Um, one of the things that might be going on here that I think is interesting, I don't want to spend too much time on it, but the Old Testament has all these verses about usury, which means charging interest when you give somebody money who's in need. You know, if, you, if somebody's in need and they need money and you charge interest, in the Old Testament, it's like, you can't do that. Those people are in need. Don't take advantage of other people's vulnerability. And so there was a common practice back then when if somebody came to you and they, they wanted to borrow something and you, and you wanted to get interest, but you didn't want to break what the Bible was saying, what you do is say, well, I know you're just borrowing, you know, 50 gallons or 50, yeah, uh, we'll say 400 gallons of olive oil, but let's just, let's make it 80. And everybody knew that you were wrapping the interest into the principal. And so maybe that's what's happening. Maybe he's going through and he's cutting out that usury, that hidden fee that everyone's aware of might be. It might be that he's just absolutely ripping off his boss, okay? Um, it might be that he's just like, you know what? I'm on my way out, and I'm just going to take a baseball bat to this company, and I'm going to do what I want. You know, it really doesn't matter whether he took out the usury or the principal. It doesn't matter because the master praises him, and he praises him not for being dishonest but for his shrewdness. This is part of the twist, you know, when you read this thing and you think, oh my gosh, the master is going to confront this guy. Not only did he already fire him, but he did all this dirty dealing at the end. What's going on? And you expect that the master is going to say, what in the world did you do? Be furious. But instead, the master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. This is part of the twist. All of Jesus' parables, they, they almost all have little twists, little zingers, and they're meant to surprise us, to wake us up. And that's exactly what this does. Uh, and so Jesus loves to do this. And why does he do this? Why does he do these little zingers? Why does he do these parables? Why didn't he just go through in a very doctrinal way, point A, you know, number one, number two, number three, point B? Jesus doesn't teach that way. He gives us these parables because he wants to mess with us. He wants to wake us up. He wants to have some kind of cognitive dissonance happen so that we stand up and we take note. And so that's what's happening. But here's the question, why? What does Jesus want us to get from this? That's the first half of the sermon. 
those of you who are astute, you know how sermons work. What I'm going to do with the rest of our time, I just kind of explained it. I want to take a look at why. Why does Jesus get our attention? Why is it so important that he gets our attention with this kind of story? And what I'm going to do is I'm going to point out something that's just kind of obvious in the background that we might easily miss. And then I'm going to draw out um, a couple of other things that really come from the very ending, verses 8 and 9, which kind of describes what's going on here, this whole business about those who are of this world being more shrewd and go make friends with money. What's, What's that all about? So that's where we're going to go. So first, something that's kind of low-lying fruit, but very clear and something we can miss because it's so obvious, and that is that we are stewards. Jesus tells a story, and oftentimes these parables, you have these kind of correlations where you'll have maybe a master and a slave or a servant or a steward, and oftentimes that corresponds to God and us. And I think that's what's going on here. The manager can be translated steward, and the reason you might use that is simply to point out the fact that this guy is actually in charge of managing someone else's things. At this point, I'm going to give a trigger warning because I'm going to talk about money. And the problem is, is you actually talk about the teachings of Jesus, you're going to have to talk about money. You know, one-third of Jesus' teachings are on money. And so right here, clearly in the background, because there's this whole comment about unrighteous mammon, this is, this is really talking about money or wealth. Um, and here's the point. The point is this. Money is a trust. Money is not a possession. It's a trust. God entrusts wealth to people. Money, property, cars, assets, and he expects it to be used for his glory and to bless others, not for our glory and our glamour. And that's clearly one of the points here. Now, as Americans, this always confuses us. You know, we have a long tradition of meritocracy in this country. We like the Marlboro man. We like the self-made individual who's gone out and conquered it. And they have earned what they have. They are a self-made man, we say. And of course, the underlying logic here is that if you have money, you have worked for it. That's my money. I earned it. I can spend it however I want. But here's the point of this whole stewardship thing. It's not your money. It's not your money. What do you mean it's not my money? It's not. Think about our resources. Where did we get our resources? How did we get our resources? Well, one of the things that's important in getting and being able to make money is you need to be alive. That's really important. Dead people, they usually don't pull in good money. And who gives life? God gives life. Who gave you your mind in order to think through things as you work? Who gave you your talents? Who gave you your friends, your family that creates the kind of emotional support? Who gave you the circumstances you have to make money. I mean, if we were all born 2,000 years ago in the Netherlands, we'd be like in a swamp in some kind of barbaric world, right? No one's making a lot of money there. You can think of a million different situations of, uh, that can be changed in our circumstances where it doesn't matter how hard you work, you're not going to make any money. What about your opportunities, your health, your existence? What we have, in fact, comes from a million different things that we had no say on And those are the things that give us the potential and possibility of actually having wealth. 1 Chronicles 29 says, Wealth and honor come from you. You are the ruler of all things. But who am I and who are my people that we should be able to give as generously as this? Everything comes from you, 
and we have given you only what comes from your hand. Do you remember when you're a parent what it was like to give your kids something so they can give you something back? I remember giving my daughter, she, you know, it was like my birthday coming up, and I'd be like, okay, here, honey, here's some money. Let me give you some money so you can actually give me something back. <laughs> that is actually what all giving is. Every time we're like, oh, I'm so virtuous. I'm going to give God a little bit of money. It's like, God's like, oh, thanks. Like, you know, don't pat yourself too hard there, buddy. <laughs> you know, everything comes from your hand. Everything comes from God's hand. It belongs to God. God has made us stewards of it. Now, if you're a fund manager and you're not using the funds in the way that your boss who owns it wants it used, what are you? It's not that you're not compassionate. It's that you're a thief. That's the problem. Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you in your tithes and offerings? Malachi 3.8. In the Old Testament, a tithe was 10%. And God's people were called on to give 10%. And, uh, and, and you think, well, gosh, um, that's a lot. Well, wait a minute here. Wait a minute here. Imagine somebody came in here and they said, hey, listen, um, I need somebody to manage all of my wealth. Uh, and here's the deal. Um, I want you to invest it in the way that I would have it invested. And um, the deal is that you just need to manage 10% and you keep the other 90% for yourself. Who here would sign up for that deal? Okay. Maybe some of you are saying, well, wait a second. That's just the Old Testament. Do we have to do this? Well, you're on to something. You're right. The 10% was just in the Old Testament. But those of you who are Bible scholars, let me ask you, are the standards and the blessings in the Old Testament higher or lower in the New Testament? They're, they're higher. You know, when Jesus says, you've heard it said, do not murder, but I say, do not have anger in your own heart. And so the idea is that that kind of generosity, it should, shouldn't decrease, it should increase especially in light of the good news we have. And so the person that's saying, well, wait a second, this should come from the heart and the New Testament is out the heart. You're right. And you're right about this. You can be technically generous with your money and still not radically generous with your heart, in your heart. But here's the deal. You can be technically generous with your money and not radically generous in your heart, but you can't be radically generous in your heart and not generous with your money. There's a connection there. And so... Uh, money is not a possession, it's a trust. All of our wealth is. So that, I think, is the low-lying fruit here. But I want to take a look at uh, these two verses that end, verses 8 and 9, where we have this kind of quasi-teaching at the end. At the end of uh, the story, Jesus says, for the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. Now, do you remember how the story ends? The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. And then he said, Jesus says, for the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. Who is the primary audience in this parable? It says in verse one, it's the disciples. Jesus is talking to the disciples. And I think that the basic kind of thrust of this parable is it's one of those how much more parables. You know, in Luke 18, we're gonna see that one. There's an unjust judge who finally gets up when someone is beating on the door and says, how much more will your heavenly father? Or Matthew 12, 1 says, if a sheep falls into a pit on the Sabbath, 
how much more valuable is a person? This kind of how much more. I think what Jesus is saying here is, if the sons of this world are shrewd in dealing with their own this worldly pursuit of wealth, then how much more should the sons of light be shrewd? That's the point, to be shrewd. Jesus is challenging his disciples to be shrewd. It's a fun word, shrewd. You ever hear a word for the first time, like, that's kind of a weird sounding word, shrewd. Yeah, shrewd. We're to be more shrewd. We're to be more shrewd than the Zuckerbergs, more than the Gates. Jesus says in Matthew 10, 16, be as shrewd as serpents and as innocent as doves. So what is shrewd? Let's, we better find out. To be shrewd is to have a clear understanding and good judgment of a situation resulting in an advantage. That comes from the Cambridge Dictionary. So shrewdness is having a certain kind of resourcefulness, a practical cleverness, being able to recognize an opportunity and take advantage of it. Shrewd people are innovative. They think outside the box. They're creative. We are called to be shrewd. God wants this. And if there's any doubt of that, there's a whole book in the Bible about how to be shrewd, how to have street smarts. It's called the book of Proverbs. One of my favorite Proverbs, whoever blesses his neighbor with a loud voice in the morning, it's going to be counted a curse. Why is that in the Bible? Because God doesn't want us to do stupid things. He wants us to be shrewd. He wants us to be smart with life and how life works. Be socially smart. Don't go come in, hey, good morning. And the person's like, oh, what? Like, that's not smart. And God doesn't want that. Be shrewd. Another verse in Proverbs, if you find honey, eat just enough, too much, it's going to make you sick. Sounds like something your mom would say. Be dietary smart. You know, don't blow out your stomach because you find a bunch of honey. Be economically smart, emotionally smart, relationally smart. Read the book of Proverbs. It's all about shrewdness. It's all about being resourceful, recognizing things, street smarts, having common sense. (laughs) But what is the smartness that Jesus is pulling in here? What is the shrewdness he's calling for? And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. See, Jesus is telling us that all of our wealth will one day fail. Everything we have will one day fail. You won't be able to access your checking account. You won't be able to access your savings. You won't be, your home, you'll no longer have access to that. Everything you have will one day be no longer accessible. There is a day coming when we'll have to say goodbye. We'll leave it all behind. And nobody's going to bring it with them. And so if all of our temporary wealth is going away, Jesus is saying you need to invest in a wealth that's going to remain. There's coming a day when our money's going to fail. You can't take it with you. And the question is, how can you act with your money today in such a way that your wealth will be transferred into something that lasts forever? Well, what is present that you have right now that you'll have on that day when it's all taken away? What do you have access to right now that when everything is gone, all of our resources are gone, we still will have that? Who are these friends in eternal dwellings? Who are these? They're God and people. God and people. These are true wealth. God and people. These are what we want to invest in. God and people. 
So I think the charge here is that the smart, the shrewd follower of Jesus is going to be able to see where true wealth lies. It's going to be able to see behind and beyond all of the things. And there's, we have to think about money. It's part of life. We have to think about these kind of things, but they can see something so much more valuable beyond that. These are the true wealth. Invest in God and people. The dishonest manager invested in relationships that would survive his demise. Michael Wilcox writes, although these things, your property, your ability, your time belong to this life only, what will happen to you when you pass into the afterlife will depend on what you did here and now. Make sure you use your money as to result in friends that will survive death. You know, when Paul talks about what he treasures, what does he talk about? Philippians 4.1, therefore, my brothers and sisters, who I love and long for, my joy and my crown. The investment he had made in the faith and life of those around him, that's what he treasured. Now, there's something really interesting happening here, and I already mentioned it before, but I want to point this out. What do the parables of the prodigal son, the unjust manager, and the rich man and Lazarus, which comes right after this one, what do they all have in common? Okay, let's think about this for a second. Because these parables in 15 and 16, they really fit tightly together, even though we make a big distinction. We leave the parable of, uh, you know, the prodigal son. We're like, goodbye, parable of the prodigal son. We're heading into talking about money. No, they're actually, they fit together. That was supposed to be funny. This, this, you guys are really serious. Uh, uh, there's a tight fit here between them. So this parable is positioned between the parable of the prodigal son and the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. And I want you to see something. These all include people squandering resources on themselves. Okay? The prodigal son, we have the unjust steward, and then we have the rich man and Lazarus. They all include people who have their fortunes turned upside down for the worse. And they all include the issue of valuation. The prodigal son values his father's money over his father until the prodigal comes to the end of his rope. The rich man, the story of rich man Lazarus, values his lifestyle over human beings in great need until the rich man dies and ends up in Hades. And the unjust manager cares little for his boss or his de- the debtors until the unjust manager realizes his impending Future. They all suddenly begin to see people who've been in front of them the whole time and they wake up. There have been people in front of them the whole time and they wake up. And of course, right before this parable are the parables of the lost, the lost coin, the lost sheep, the lost prodigal. Luke 15 says, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who need no repentance. There's so much joy in heaven Think about the economy in heaven. In heaven, we're told that gold is used in order to pave the streets. But one person who comes to know God and know what God has done for him in Jesus Christ, all heaven goes bananas. Jesus said in John 4.35, look, look up, look. I tell you, the fields are white for harvest. Can't you see the people that are in front of you? Can't you see their value? Can't you see what they need? 
There is another group that this is said for. You know, it tells us a little later on, a few verses later, that the Pharisees who were listening to Jesus give this entire story of the unjust manager. And you know what they do? They scoff. And it tells us why. It's because the Pharisees cared more about money than people. They are the older brothers we saw last week who wouldn't spend a dime of their money to search for the lost. They wouldn't go out of their way. They had otherworldly pursuits. So what is heaven? What is heaven going to be? And why would true wealth look like investing in the people around us? Heaven is not going to be harps. It's not going to be streets of gold. That's not what matters. Heaven is going to be preeminently, mostly about friendships, about deep love, about knowing and being known, about entering into a world of love that our minds can scarcely imagine. Jonathan Edwards, a theologian I love, wrote a sermon called Heaven, a World of Love. Heaven is a place where God and people come first, where love is perfected. He writes this, excuse the long quote, but it's so good. God is the fountain of love, as the sun is the fountain of light. And therefore, the glorious presence of God in heaven fills heaven with love as the sun, placed in the midst of the visible heaven in a clear day, fills the world with light. There, even in heaven, dwells the God from whom every stream of holy love, yea, every drop that is or ever was, proceeds. Every experience and every little drop of love you've ever seen ultimately comes from God. He is the source. There dwells God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit, united as one in infinitely dear and incomprehensible and mutual and eternal love. There, this glorious God is manifested and shines forth in full glory in beams of love. And there, the glorious fountain forever flows forth in streams, yea, in rivers of love and delight. And these rivers swell, as it were, to an ocean of love in which the souls of the ransomed may bathe with the sweetest enjoyment and their hearts, as it were, be deluged with love. I met my wife July 6, 5.45 a.m., Kensington Court at Starbucks. I offered her coffee. Small purchase. Nine months later, I was cleaning out my checking account and buying a ring. <laughs> How did that money start flowing? It's because I had a vision for a world of love, and I would do anything to enter that world with this woman. And the money became irrelevant because my heart was moved so much. I wanted to invite her into this world. You see what happens when we start caring about our neighbors, when we want them to be with us, when we want them to be the friends in the eternal dwellings with us? Who do you want to leave behind from that amazing world of love? I don't want to leave anybody behind. And the money we have, it doesn't matter. What matters is that we let everybody know that that door is wide open because of what Jesus has done. And we can be there. And we can be with God, the very fountain of all love. So what does this look like on Monday morning? What does this mean? You know, this, this steward, he wrapped his job around himself. He didn't care about his boss. He didn't care about the debtors. Well, let's just think about what this means on Monday morning. Instead of doing a crappy job, I'll use that language, which is what the steward did. You know, he's lazy. He's thinking about nobody but himself. 
If we get touched with this world that's to come and we want people to be a part of that, it means we're going to work differently. Instead of eating lunch alone, we're going to intentionally invite coworkers, especially those who maybe no one pays attention to, to lunch and hear their story. We're going to make it a daily priority to speak or write encouraging notes for those around us. We're going to bring extra snacks. Everybody likes extra snacks. Make a list of your coworkers' birthdays. Find a way to bless everyone on their birthday. Make, make a, uh, have a regular lunch out with your coworkers. And don't be selective on the invites. Visit coworkers when they're in hospital. And you know what? Do a really good job. Do a job where it's like, clearly, you're not just working in order to pad your own pockets or to feather your nest. You're working because you want to bless the people that have given you that opportunity to work. Go out of your way to talk to the people that work behind the scenes, the people who are overlooked. Take a minute just to ask somebody, how are you doing? You know, once you get into the flow and I get in that, I, ended it, uh, I had a really busy day and it was the end of a Zoom call and the Holy Spirit's like, stop for a second and just, just be a pastor. That's actually your job. I'm like, you know, how are you doing? What can, you know, what can I pray for you for? Or if that language is gonna cause confusion, say, you know, how are you doing? Is there anything that, you know, that I can help you with or anything that it's, it's, you know, in your life that I can be mindful of? People will be like, wow. You know, when we begin to demonstrate love, all we're doing is we are giving off a signal to people that there is a world of love that they can be a part of because of Jesus. So who's waiting for us? Is there anybody gonna be waiting for you? Who have we already sent on? Who are we sending on ahead? Who, when we get there first, will will we be waiting for? Because we led them to this world of love. Jim Elliott, who was a missionary, said, he is no fool who loses what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. I want to invite the band to come up at this time. Um, And I want to close with this. The Apostle Paul needed to raise some money because there was, there was, a, there was a famine in the, in the first century, and the Christians were seriously struggling in a certain part of the Roman Empire. And so he, need, he needed to raise some money, and this is what he said in 2 Corinthians. He said, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. What's going to loosen our hands with our wealth so that we can use it to bless others? It's that story of the God who became poor for our sake. You know, Jesus was willing to let go of all the riches of heaven, everything, so that he might have us in that world of love. the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God that spends everything. May we be people who are so moved by what God has done for us. May we look at our resources and say, Lord, how can the resources I have be used to invite other people into this world so they might have eternal fellowship with you and that we might be a part of this world that you're creating? May it be so.